All right, well, good morning. There they come. All right, I just want to make sure it's going to be moving over. All right, well, hey, guys, my name is uh, Seth. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at, uh, at Salem. And uh, boy, uh, it is just a, it's a privilege to, to be on mission with you guys, as I've been just thinking this week and, and just this morning. It's just a privilege just to come together and worship uh, together on mornings like this. So it's just beautiful. I was driving in this morning early and saw the lightning in the sky. I thought, man, what a great, 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 beautiful, wonderful, amazing God that, that, we, that we worship. So we're glad you guys are here joining us uh, this morning. Uh, I want to start with just a quick story. About 12 years ago, uh, I was, we were living in Colorado, and I had the privilege, uh, the opportunity to, to hear uh, the testimony uh, of a guy uh, who looked very much like this from this frisking church, uh, and, uh, and he was telling the story about a moment when he went rock climbing with some, with some friends, and uh, uh, he did it, uh, obviously, very much like this, and so he was actually, he wouldn't have been up at the bottom, he would have been the very point guy, the very uh, first guy going up the mountain, and so as he's doing this, uh, he goes and goes and goes, he's the one choosing the route, uh, he's the one choosing which direction they go, and, and, and everywhere he goes, um, he finds these different cracks uh, in the wall, and what you do is you take this, this instrument, it's called a cam, it's a mechanism, uh, and so for these larger cracks, it's kind of like this pulley system, and I wish I had one, but they're like billions of dollars. Um, so you pull on this, on this like handle, and it collapses the head, and what you do is that you stick it into the crack, and then you let go of the handle, and it, and it expands, kind of like a drywall anchor, <laughs> okay, so it's, but, but way, way more durable. Um, and so you, you put this into these massive cracks as you go. Uh, and sometimes, and the reason why you do this is because if you fall, uh, there's nobody else to catch you. So the cam that's in the rock is supposed to catch you as you, as you fall. And sometimes uh, the crack is, is not very big, and your cam can be as small as this. It's this teeny, tiny little piece of metal at the top. And if you find a small crack, you take this and you wedge it into the crack. And then you clip in your carabiner and you connect that to your, to your being. <laughs> and this is as big as it gets sometimes, right? But the reality is that this is, these are safety precautions, right? These are things. And so as he's telling the story, he's telling, he's going on and on about how he gets to the top, he's moving, and his buddies are down below, and it's taking them just too long. He, he's, he's growing impatient. He wants to make sure that he's going to summit the mountain that day. And so he gets to a certain point, and what he realizes is that we're not going to make it. I'm not going to make it to the top unless, well, if, if I have to keep waiting for them. So here's what he does. He detaches himself at the top of a mountain on a wall like this. He detaches himself from, from all of the mechanisms, all of the harnesses, all of the ropes, and it's just him. And he begins to free climb and climb and climb and climb and climb. And he's going and he's going and he's going. And as he's telling the story, he said, one moment I was on the wall and the next moment I was not. Now, keep in mind, he's sharing the story, so he made it, but at one point, uh, he held the world record for the longest fall in surviving. It was like 500 plus feet. He fell. 
and survived, <laughs> amazingly, by God's grace. Um, but it's an interesting story because as I think about this, as I think about the gospel, right, I am convinced that for me, and maybe for some of you guys, is that what we do in life uh, is that we, we um, have this safety net around us that's called the gospel, right? We enter into this relationship with Jesus, and we are so stoked, we are beyond excited that salvation exists for us, but then all of a sudden life gets going, and we think we're growing impatient, and we don't want to wait for the rest of other people, or we don't want to wait for God to work. And so what do we do? We detach ourselves from the gospel. And we're climbing and climbing and climbing. And as we're doing this, we are confident in our own abilities. But one moment we're on the wall, and the next moment we're not. And we're falling. And that's why grace exists, right? But I'm convinced that we do this in life, is that we detach ourselves from the gospel. We've been in this this series um, called Risking Church, Uh, and today we're wrapping up this series, and we're going to go into a a three-week mini-series starting next week, and then we're doing Ephesians in the fall, and so we're really excited about all that stuff uh, coming up. But um, today we're wrapping up this series, and so I want to invite you uh, to grab your Bible, uh, because we're going to be in the gospel Uh, of Mark. And so it's the second New Testament book, Matthew, Mark, okay, Luke, John. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verse uh, 13. But we're going to bring, I think, at least I hope, we're going to bring some some conclusion to the question or to the statement about risking church, why choosing to be fully known is worth the risk. Because it does, it feels like a risk. But we want to we fully and finally uh, answer that. And so, um, but before we get into the text, I want to uh, come over here and just give us, give us a, a quick little background uh, about what Jesus is entering uh, into. Um, he's entering into in Mark uh, chapter 2. And so, um, I'm going to draw a couple of groups of people. Um, one is, is the... Is the um, the group called the Sadducees, okay? So these are the people, this is kind of like, like the, the Judaism church, so to speak, okay? Because like the, the Christian church doesn't really exist yet because that hasn't been established. And so uh, as Jesus enters into the scene, there's kind of these three branches of church uh, with, uh, within Judaism. And one, it has to do with these guys called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are the, the, probably the most influential people um, in, terms of, in terms of their church. And they, they um, are down here in Jerusalem, kind of down in this area, okay? Um, and uh, they um, believe in the first five books of the law, and they reject the resurrection for whatever reason. I don't know why. I don't see how well that works out for them. Probably not very well. Um, so you have the Sadducees. But then you also have uh, this other group uh, of people, um, and they're called the Essenes, okay? Um, you might have heard of these people before because we know of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've heard of that. That's what this, the Essenes are known uh, for that. And one of their locations is kind of down over here right by the Dead Sea, kind of in this place called Qumran. And they have a couple different spots, but that's where they are. Uh, and they actually uh, have chosen to separate themselves from these people and the other people because they feel like this is being abused, that all this stuff is wrong, there's not good things happening. And so they remove themselves from the, that system and they kind of go do their own thing. And so if you know, the temple is required for sacrifices, right? You need the temple. So how do they do it? Well, they take these special ceremonial baths and that's how they get by. That's how they some 
somehow justify their way or their determined way of becoming righteous, okay, becoming righteous. So then you've got uh, these, this final group of people, and these are probably the most important people, and these are the Pharisees, right? And the Pharisees are, are mostly up in this area, which is in uh, Galilee, this whole area, right? And, and these guys are significant, because these guys are the, probably the guys that Jesus has the most conflict with in, in the Gospels, although he has conflict with the Sadducees as well, not so much with the Essenes. Um, but these Pharisees are interesting people because they are so concerned about the law, right? They, in fact, think that their oral traditions go all the way back to the time of Moses. So they are super infatuated with following the law. In fact, what they do is they created this thing called fencing, okay? And fencing is basically this, is that they are so concerned about following the law of God in the first five books that they design all of their own other laws around those laws. They build these fences because their fear is that they don't want to break one law. So if they build other laws, if, as long as they don't cross that fence, then they'll never actually cross the other one. And they'll never break that law. And that's their way of determining their righteousness. Okay? Does that make sense? Probably can't answer me. I hope that makes sense. Okay. Um, so here's the deal, though, is that each of these three, this is kind of the, the three different ch churches, so to speak, within Judaism. Each of them, um, it, this is what they have in common. They all believe in the first five books of the law, okay? So they're, they're tight on this. But here's where they're different, is that they each interpret the law very differently. And what that means is that they determine righteousness and how they, how they achieve righteousness differently from each other. Uh, and that's called the word halak in Hebrew. And if you remember that from one of our old series, it teaches you how to walk according to the law. And so here's where it's interesting, is that Jesus, right, who enters into the scene, he's going to come into the middle of this group, and he's going to place himself right here. Um, and these Pharisees, these are the people that we're going to run into conflict today, uh, and in the middle of this group are all these other people, the social outcasts that the, that the Pharisees would say that we separate from these people, because these people are not righteous. These are the unrighteous people. And so the Pharisee, the word Pharisee actually comes from the, from the word to separate. And they say, we separate from those people. And Jesus enters in with his own interpretation of the law into this group of people. And instead of separating himself from them, what does he do? He embraces them. And he's going, to, he's going to eat a meal with these people. And it's going to be absolutely amazing what Jesus actually shows us in this text uh, this morning. Okay, so here we are in verse 13, uh, chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Here's what he says. It says, and he went out again, so this is multiple times he's done this, again, besides the sea, uh, and, and, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Okay, so in context, this is actually right following when Jesus is in this tiny little house, if you remember, uh, and all of these, these people, these four men, bring their friend, and they lower him through the roof of this house, and Jesus says something pretty spectacular to this man. Even though he is desperate for physical healing, Jesus looks at this man and says, son, your sins are forgiven, which is absolutely astonishing that he would say this. 
But he says, but so that you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, guess what? I'll also say, pick up your mat and walk. And so all of a sudden, there's going to be this crowd, this growing and growing and growing around Jesus. And so Jesus is just passing by the sea, and all of these people are coming to him, and they are following him, okay? And so that's the context that really that we're in. Okay, so check this out in verse 14. Here's how the story uh, progresses. It says, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Okay, so there's so much going on here, so much uh, going on uh, in this tiny uh, little verse, okay? So here's what I want, I would just, again, I want to give you a little bit of uh, quick context here. Uh, if I come back to, actually, no, I'm not going to go to this. I'm going to go to a picture. I want to, I want to see this, this picture up here. Nope, not that one, sorry. I confused you guys. I just went the wrong way. There we go. This is, um, this is a giant hill just right off, of the, right off of the Dead Sea, okay? And it's a place called Masada, and it's, and it's significant because there's this guy um, right before Jesus. His name was Herod the Great, okay? You remember Herod the Great? Right? He was this really, really wealthy, uber-wealthy dude. He paid for all of Israel's taxes out of his own pocket every single year. Okay? Super wealthy, but he's also super paranoid. And so what he does is that he builds, I think it's like eight different fortresses all across, um, uh, all across Israel because he's afraid that if anybody were to come attack him from any direction, he should be able to flee to any point. And so he builds these eight fortresses. And on top of this, right, you can see this is a pretty lush, rich, green growing climate, right? Right? <laughs> no, super dead. <laughs> There's nothing here. And yet, at, in his time, he had this, the, the entire top of that hill was one fortress. And the entire top was covered in, I think, 12 to 16 inch of soil that they had to haul in, which was watered by servants who had to walk all the way down the hill, get water in jugs, and carry it back up. So it cost, like, just the equivalence of millions of dollars. This was one of his fortresses, okay? Do you want to know how many times Herod the Great went to Masada? One. Herod the Great, <laughs> making it rain. Lots of money, lots of money. Okay, he had so much money. When Herod the Great dies, guess what? He has three sons. He has three sons who inherit some of his area. And so what he does is that, uh, is that it break, he breaks up the different regions uh, for, his, uh, for his sons. Okay, so uh, down here in this region, uh, is the son Archelaus, and he gets kind of the, the Judah or the south, okay? So he gets that uh, area. He has another son named Philip who gets this part over here, and uh, that's called the Golan Heights because these are like the Golan Mountains right here. And then he has another son uh, whose name uh, is Herod Antipas, and he gets this area, okay? in the Galilee. So now we're kind of combining these stories. Now what happens is that if your father is uber, 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 uber rich, and then you have now split the kingdom three ways, what do your sons want? More money. They want more money. They need more money. They need more money. So here's what they do, is that with these regions, so if you're crossing over, say, from the, from the region of Philip into the region of Herod Antipas, Guess what? They do. They set up tax booths. So anytime you cross these regions, there's this little booth and a little tiny guy who sits there that says, 
give me money. <laughs> because he needs to give money to who? These people, because they want more money. And so then there's this guy, what does he want? He needs money, right? So everybody in the story wants money, okay? So check out this other picture, this next picture. This is actually a picture um, uh, right along the, the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And this is actually the road that's probably in the same contour uh, as the, that first century road. And you'd be passing at this point, that corner over there with the city is the city of Capernaum. Uh, and this is the area that if you were crossing right through here as you're entering, you would be transferring from the Rome or the, like the region or the domain of Philip into the region of Herod Antipas. And here is this man named Levi, asking for money, asking for money, asking for money. Everybody in the story wants money, right? Do you see what's happening here, right? Here, here's, here is Levi. Now, we don't know if Levi approved of the rulers, uh, and we don't know how much he charged, um, but, but tax collectors were kind of like um, meter maids on steroids, Okay, and here's what I mean by that. You ever run to your car and uh, they are just like putting the ticket, if you're a meter maid, I'm so sorry. Um, so if the, you run to your car and they've just put it down and you're like, no, but I'm gonna move. I, I, it's just two minutes, 30 seconds, I'll, let me just move. And they're like, no, like I'm just doing my job. Okay, but in this period, what he had the ability to do, there was, no, there was only a set number that he needed to collect for either Philip or Herod Antipas. So the only way for Levi to make money is to charge extra. That's his, this is his way of life, and he wants money. So what does he do? He charges more. Now, we don't know how much more he charges, but it could be like a meter maid who said, you know what, um, you owe the city $20, but I'm actually going to charge you 50 Do you think that that would earn you lots of friends? No, right? And this is, this is, the, this is where Levi, right? This, he's just doing his job, but he wants money. Everybody in the story wants money. And you're going to deal with the disgruntled words of your peers, right? Because these are fellow Jews walking through. Like, I can't believe, I'm so, you are despicable. Your, your mother would be ashamed of you. You are a traitor to your own people. You know, I, I just heard about a guy who forgives sins. Guess what? He wouldn't forgive yours. You're a terrible person. And meanwhile, right, here is Levi. As he's sitting, he's just taking all of this into his own heart. Is he making money? Absolutely. But it just accumulates and accumulates and it would have accumulated in his heart over and over and over. But here's the deal. One day, Jesus passes by, and he sees Levi. And Jesus doesn't grumble. He doesn't yell at him. In fact, he says one of the most intriguing things. He looks at him, and he says, follow me. What would you do? what would you do? He says, follow me. And the controversy that this call from Jesus to Levi is going gonna, is gonna to stir, it is massive because A, it challenges who God's mercy is ultimately for, but B, it also, it talks about the cost of discipleship. Jesus is saying, you need to leave all of that behind, but follow me. Follow me. And I want you just to think about this call for a second, right? The call from Jesus uh, in this moment is first and foremost, it's relational. 
Right? Think about how powerful this is for Levi. Right? Jesus' call to Levi is dripping with dignity. So much honor, and he treats him with value as a human being. Right? It's super relational. Right? What's the second one? The second one is invitational. Right? Even though it's in the imperative in the Greek, right, it's still, you have a choice. Do I choose to follow this Jesus character? And what Jesus is doing, though, is he's saying, he's not looking at Levi and saying, hey, if you follow me, um, you know, you're not going to really make much money. It's really not going to be that good. No, he's like inviting them into something so much greater and something so much bigger than he ever could have imagined, right? And it's not stagnant, right? It's transformational. Here's the third thing. Because what Jesus is doing is he's saying, if you follow me, guess what? You're going to be transformed in the image of me, (laughs) right? You're going to be transformed in the image of me. And it's not stagnant. And so when we think about discipleship, it always requires a sense of following, right? Just imagine if Jesus said, hey, follow me. And and he goes, cool, Jesus, I'm going to follow you from here. See you later. I'm going to keep making money. And Jesus goes away, right? No, like it's transformational because it always requires this action and this movement to go where he would go. And guess what? He's gonna take Levi to some places that are really challenging and really difficult, but Levi wants it bad. He wants it bad. And the last thing is this, it's supernatural, right? Jesus is saying like, this isn't, this isn't just a call to follow like some good moralistic teacher, it's not like I can just cool, like work cool miracles. Right? This is the son of God, and it's divine. And so there's this intrinsic nature in which Levi hears the call. He goes, man, I want to be like that guy. So bad I want to be like that guy. And guess what? It's not by my own doing. It's actually the work that he's going to do in me and through me. So then this doesn't rely on me. It's not about me. It's not about what I can do. It's about what he can do in me and through me. It's supernatural. So you begin to see how incredible this call is for Levi in this moment. I want you to check out this quote from, um, because many of you guys have probably heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is from his book, Cost of Discipleship. He says this. (laughs) This 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 is crazy, okay? Christianity without the living Christ. I love how he qualifies Christ there as living, right? This is present and active. Christianity without the living Christ is inevitably Christianity without discipleship. But get this, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. I want you to think about that, right? That's a powerful, powerful line. Now, I want to ask you, we can leave that up for a second, but I want to ask you another question. This is a question, as it's in a book written by a dear friend of mine. His name is Bill Allison, and he wrote this question, and we'll talk about this more next week as we start our little kind of mini Cave Table Road series. Um, but he asked this question, and he says this. Um, he says, at what point, like in history, at what point did becoming a Christian mean something other than being a follower of Jesus? At what point does being a Christian become something other than being a follower of Jesus? You see, I th- there's, this, there's this idea with the call, and in the Christian life, we have these two tensions. We want to grow, but we also want to be comfortable. And the reality is, is that you can have comfort or you can have growth, but you can't have them both, at least at the same time. And that's hard. 
right? That's the cost of discipleship, right? That's the cost of following Jesus. But what does Levi do in this moment? What does he do? Does he, go, does he hear Jesus' invitation go, wow, that sounds amazing, but I'm going to pass. <laughs> I like my nice things. I'm going to pass. No, in this moment, he makes the decision. This, he, makes this, he makes this decision that he wants more than money, and he also makes the decision that he wants more than all of the suffering and the pain and the grossness, all those words that people have said against me. I want more than that. I need something more than that. And so he makes this decision, and he follows Jesus. He follows Jesus. And it's in this moment that it's likely, we don't know all of the details, but it's in this moment that Levi likely ceases to become a vocational tax collector and becomes a professional follower of Jesus. This is my life's calling in this moment. And so what does he do? What, do, what does he do? He's following Jesus. He's, he's just given up everything. And he's starting a whole new chapter. What does he do? <laughs> I love this. Uh, I love this. In, in, verse, uh, in verse, where is this? Uh, 15, okay? Um, and it says, and uh, he, and as he, this is Jesus, he reclined at the table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So um, Levi says, the first thing that I want to do is throw a massive party. I want to throw a massive party. And guess who I'm going to invite? I'm going to invite all of my friends. How many friends do you have? Not very many. Who are your friends? The people that are outcasts like you, Right? And so it's just that, oh, there's a lot of people that are following him. So Levi, in this moment, is just really the symbol for an entire group of people who are like him that want and crave and are drawn to Jesus. Levi is just the symbol for those people. And he invites all of these people into his home, right? This is, this is the tax collector's table, right? And the issue here isn't the table. The issue is actually who the party is for because the word sinners and tax collectors, we know who tax collectors, the word sinners uh, is probably a, a term used by the Pharisees uh, for a group of people who had the, not the time or the energy or the ability to invest in the, the Mosaic law, in the Torah. And so they deemed them as unrighteous. You people, it's not like you're just these gross, like weird people. It's like, no, you just can't do what we do and therefore you are separated from us. You are unrighteous nonetheless, right? It's this group of outcasts. And so it's this party for outcasts. It's a party for everybody that society has deemed unfit for this thing. And guess what though? But who's the honored guest? Jesus. You see, the Pharisees are going to end up looking from the outside in, and they focus on the table and the sinners, but you know what the sinners are doing? They're focusing on Jesus, right? They're so infatuated with this guy named Jesus because he is the focus, because we talk a lot about Cave Table Road here. Uh, I keep bringing that up because it's, it's the rhythms of Jesus, right? The cave is the authentic conversation uh, with the Father. Uh, the table is authentic conversation with our friends and family. And the road is where we have engaged and authentic conversation with the world, people who do not know Jesus. But guys, in, in Judaism, the table, the table, that space was reserved for the most intimate of friendships in your life. 
Who does Jesus sit with? Tax collectors and sinners. This is who Jesus fits with, right? And the outsiders are shocked that he's treating these people this way. And the insiders are shocked that, that Jesus is treating him this way, them this way. Right? The outsiders are becoming insiders and the insiders are becoming outsiders. That's what's happening in this moment. And that's where it's going to cause some major conflict because Jesus' mission to the unrighteous people offends the who? The righteous people. His mission to, to the unrighteous offends the people who are righteous or the self-righteous, okay? So here's what happens, right? Um, in, in verse 16, here's what they say. It causes conflict. It says, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this makes total sense, right? Because their entire righteousness is built on what? separating themselves from the unrighteous people. So this is a question that makes total sense to them, right? Remember that they created fences. That's the fencing thing. Um, and so they're so afraid of crossing this barrier with God that they created or fenced in that law with all these other laws to make sure they never even got close, okay? Now, I know this is an exaggeration, but kind of picture it this way. Uh, it's like the Pharisees um, said, let's find out where Levi lives. Let's find out where the unrighteous people live and let's go to their house and let's build a fence for them. Like they show up. Hey, Levi, do you mind if we just put it? Yeah, I've been meaning to put in a fence. Well, we'll just put it in for you. <laughs> he thinks it's for him, but really it's for us. Right? This is kind of what's happening they want to be separated from this type of person. In fact, in, in, in Luke's account, he adds the word grumbling, that the, that the Pharisees grumbled against the disciples. Grumbling, grumbling. And the word is ergagudze, which sounds like grumbling. Ergagudze, ergagudze, ergagudze. They're grumbling. Right? They're grumbling. And in fact, that's a word that's reserved for Jesus' connection with these types of people only. And if you look into the Old Testament, which translated into the Greek, they use the same word when they're talking about how the nation of Israel, guess what? They ergagudze against Moses and God in the wilderness. Ergagudze. Goose pause and stop just, just shortly. Um, when in life has grumbling ever solved anything? Right? It's like we think that if we can grumble enough, like the magic fairy appears and like, ding, and they're like, oh, yeah, here you go, sweetie, here's a candy bar. You know, grumbling, that's what happens. They're grumbling against, against Jesus, right, in this moment. And Jesus' response in verse 17 is absolutely brilliant. He doesn't go after the Pharisees. He doesn't attack them, right? He says this beautiful thing. It says, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I want to stop there for a moment. Because this makes total sense, right, when we start thinking about the context. Because Jesus was just healing this guy who's a paralytic. And so people see him as a doctor or as a physician. And so he's talking about this language. He's using this language. I know how you perceive me. And so this is the language that I am going to use to help you understand, right? And so it's this invitation to consider yourself. Are you healthy? 
or are you sick? Are you healthy or are you sick? And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, uh, that's not really what I'm talking about. (laughs) So if you want to know really what I'm talking about, here's what I really mean. I came not to call the righteous, but to call the unrighteous, the sinners. That's what I'm talking about. That's what Jesus is saying in this moment. You guys want to know why risking church is so important? It's that line right there. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The church exists of sinners, of unrighteous people who are made righteous through Jesus, not self-righteous people. That's the church. That's why risking church is so important. And so I wanna come back to this just for a moment. And as I think about Jesus, in the center of these three different groups. You see, Jesus enters into the outcasts, and what he begins to do is he builds a house right here. He builds a house, and you have all these people who are outside looking in. And I think what's interesting for us as we read this text, sometimes, or at least the way that I used to read this text is that I was, I was on the outside of the house, and I would look in, I'd peer into the windows, and I would say, wow, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. That's incredible. How, how awesome is that? Good for him. Good for him. When in reality, what I should be saying is that, wow, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, which means that he actually eats with me. Wait, I need to be inside the house. And to be inside the house, I need to understand that I'm not righteous, but I'm unrighteous. These are the people who get to be in relationship with Jesus. And these people are outside looking in, grumbling. Do you get that? Right, that's the world we live in. As I look here through the window, I need to begin to see over time, this is why risking church is so important, is that I look through that window and I begin to see, instead of other people's faces, I begin to see my own face on a person sitting inside that room with Jesus. I am an unrighteous person. Guys, risking church is about fostering that type of community where we understand understand our unrighteousness. Uh, I was listening to a song, and as I wrap up, I was listening to this song uh, by Switchfoot. Switchfoot's one of my favorite bands, uh, because I'm old and they're old. Um, and uh, seriously, they're old now. Um, and, uh, but I was re-listening to The Beautiful Letdown, which is one of my favorite CDs. And in one of the songs, actually the song Beautiful Letdown, it says this, we are a beautiful letdown. Right? We are gorgeous people. Like we are made in the image of God, but we are a total letdown. Right? We fall short of the glory of God. So they say, we are a beautiful letdown. We are painfully uncool. We are the church of the dropouts, the sinners, the failures, and the fools. That's the church, right? I'm not pretending to be anything else. Pretending to be anything else is a lie. Right? We all are Z's. And so I just want to leave you um, with this final big idea. Right? This is super important. Those who are healthy have no need for a physician, but the sick do. I just want to challenge you to think through this. Those who are healthy have no need for a physician, but the sick 
they do. Guys, you and I, we are designed for community. And if you remember our story, right, it started with God uh, and everything was perfect. The fall enters, the sin enters in the world, everything is messed up. And as a result, I have this deep longing to step into the light and yet I'm constantly moving back to the shadows where I hide and blame and all of my sin and I cover everything up. And I, I just think in the world that we live in, we've lived in the shadows too long. Right? We're, we're too okay with being reliant on ourselves, with detaching ourselves from the gospel and showing ourselves to be these, these self-righteous, extra hard-working people. That's not who we are, and that's not who gets to sit in the house with Jesus. And that's the challenge, right? And so here's my question. Maybe you guys have been outside of the house kind of peering in, and as you peer into the house, you see people laughing, you see people crying, you see people cheering, you see people uh, just, just having intimate, deep, hard conversations, right? You, you're peering in from outside the house. And you begin to, my hope is that we begin to realize is that the more fully known we are, the more fully loved we can be by each other. It's perfect with God, but it's, this is the community that we're building, right? We accept our brokenness. We admit that we're tax collectors and sinners, that we are outcasts. And that's a starting point for a rich and vibrant relationship with Jesus where we don't just sit here and pat each other on the back and say, wow, that's a struggle. Me too, me too. No, there's a call, an intimate call from Jesus who says, follow me. And he will take us into really, really hard places. But guess what? It starts inside the house. That's where it started for Levi, and that's where it can start for us. And so we go into the house. And so as I think about this, I just want to end with this. I want to invite um, the worship team uh, to come on up, and we'll finish uh, with a song. I want to just end with this. I think we need to recapture the why behind church. We recapture, coming out of COVID, we recapture the why behind church. And we begin to think that risking church, right, it's not just a teaching series. This is a process. This is a long process. It's a gospel journey that all of us are on together in this room. Where we're building a gospel uh, community around Jesus where we are, we're, we're capturing, recapturing the intentionality of gospel-filled relationships inside the church, and the more we understand God's grace and the gospel in our lives, the more it's going to fuel our impact outside the church. And so here's my thing as we end. I want you to think about this. Jesus and his message is, is our focus inside the church so that our focus outside of the church is his mission. To understand our mission outside the church is to understand, first and foremost, Jesus' mission to us inside the church. And it's a powerful thing. And this next week, uh, we're going to be at Trollwood. And so I want to invite you guys to come sit around the table, right, to celebrate uh, and to rejoice together that all of us together are tax collectors and sinners. Amen? Like, that's who we are. That's okay. But it's us on this journey where we're embarking on this journey to say, man, we're going to follow Jesus in bold, in powerful, in big ways in the future. And that's what we want as we are molded and shaped into the likeness of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we wrap up, Lord, I just pray this big idea over each of us. It is not the healthy who have the need for the physician, it's the sick. 
And this Risking Church series is just so important for us as we begin to embrace at greater depths the nature of who we are. And we don't have to pretend to be self-righteous and to be people who are unhooking ourselves from the gospel and climbing up the mountain saying, woohoo, look at us, cheering us on. We need the gospel at all times on a daily basis where we are reminded of our depravity and that at each moment is a moment not to celebrate me, but to celebrate Christ. And that you and me and together as a community, we are being built up into the church who understands the gospel and lives it out practically in the world that we live in, in this postmodern, post-Christian, anti-church world. And so Lord, would you just do an amazing work both in us and through us. We love you. Amen. Please.